Well, the year is 1967, and we are at war with Vietnam. And you find yourself in the U.S. Army Ranger training station at Fort Benning, Georgia. And you hear the raspy voice of your sergeant saying, we are here to save your lives. We are here to see that you overcome all of your fears. We're going to show you just how much incredible stress the human mind and body can endure. And when we're finished with you, you will be the Army's best. And then he is about to dismiss you. And he says, I'm going to give you your very first assignment now. And you're thinking it's going to be something horrific, like, you know, putting everything on and, and marching up 10 miles or something, or, or maybe rappelling off the steepest cliff you've ever heard and seen before. But what he says is this, go find yourself a ranger buddy. You'll need to stick together. You'll never leave each other. You'll encourage each other. And if necessary, you'll carry each other. And it's as if the army knew that difficult assignments require a friend. Together is better than alone. And today, in our teaching, we're going to find that together is definitely better than alone. Jesus is going to teach us that today through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And many times, the Christian life is seen as a battle, as a war. In fact, throughout the New Testament, it's depicted as such. You're going to be fighting sin, your flesh. You're going to be fighting false teaching. You're going to be fighting spiritual forces that you can't even see. That's why God commanded us to lock arms with each other and do this together, to fight the hardships together. I'd like to invite you to turn to Colossians 4, 7 to 11. That's our passage for tonight. And that's where Paul is going to show us definitely that together is better than alone. Paul needed friends, and so do we. Here is what he says. Tychicus will tell you all of my activities. He is a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. In Colossians 4, Paul shows us he's not trying to do it alone. He's going to pull the curtain back on his life, and he's going to show us these all-important relationships he has with these godly Christian brothers and how they're locking arms and doing the Christian life together. And as we look at the faithful friends that Paul is going to introduce us to, we're going to see what it takes to be a good friend by his descriptions. This passage looks like a bunch of names to you, but it's much more than that. Because today we're going to be introduced to a bunch of Paul's pals. They lived with him in Rome as he was in prison there in the year AD 62. They rubbed shoulders with him every day, day in and day out, and they carried for him the burden of imprisonment that he had there. But in a word, what they did for him is they stayed with him. We talked about this at retreat and how love endures. Love stays. That's what he is doing. These people are doing for Paul. And you know, if Paul needed friends, we do too. And that takes us to point number one, which is understand your need for friends. Paul needed them, you need them. Understand your need for friends. I want to introduce you to these five guys, these five godly men that surrounded Paul. First, there was Tychicus. He joined up during the third missionary journey. He was obviously very trustworthy because during that third missionary journey, he was given the money the money that had been collected by all these churches that was going to be then taken to the poor Christians who were experiencing a famine in the city of Jerusalem. 
There was no banks or wire transfers, so they were actually carrying the money. You're going to give that to the most trustworthy guys in the group, right? That's who Tychicus was. He surely had to say goodbye to his job, to his family, to his friends in order to go travel with Paul. Um, at the time of the writing of Colossians, Tychicus may have been with Paul for four years. We don't know for sure, but it seems as though he might have been there. Maybe he was there the whole time, but we know he joined up with him on the way to Jerusalem in the third missionary journey. Even though Paul constantly said, trouble awaits me there, as they walked towards Jerusalem, trouble awaits me there, trouble awaits me there, and Tychicus walked with him. He gets arrested, of course, Paul does. He's sent to Caesarea, spends two years in prison there with the Felix Festus thing, then does this dangerous journey to Rome where we hear about that huge shipwreck, right? Where they, you know, have all this terrible, dangerous things happen, and then, of course, he's under house arrest for two years in Rome. Tychicus is with him, okay? Certainly, Tychicus is with him when he goes to Jerusalem, and certainly, Tychicus is with him when he's writing the book of Colossians. We're not sure if he was with him every minute, but he was with him. Um, and that's why Paul is going to ask Tychicus to take this letter back for him, because he's sitting next to him, and he's going to then take the long journey back across Italy. Then he jumps in a boat, goes across the sea to, to Greece, traverses Greece, jumps in a boat again, crosses another sea, and gets to the edge of Asia Minor, and then travels 100 miles to Colossae. This is a very long journey. He's saying, hey, Tychicus, can you run this letters back for me? Okay, that is a lot to ask. This is a lot. Um, this is no small thing. In fact, every time we see Tychicus in Scripture, the five times we see him, every time he is working hard. He's doing tough things. And uh, surely, he was called to deliver this letter because he was a hard worker, because he was a dependable person. He also took the letter of Philemon and Ephesians with him. So he took three pieces of scripture that you have in your Bible, were handled by this man, and walked across all these miles to get where they needed to go. Later on, in the last two times we see Tychicus in your Bible, it's he's being asked by Paul to basically be an interim pastor, to go uh, to Crete and to Ephesus and take Timothy and Titus's place for a little while so they could visit Paul. So Tychicus is a guy who's a hard worker and does whatever Paul needs him to do. One man said the greatest ability in the world is dependability. And that's what Paul needed. He could depend on Tychicus to get the job done. Next, we have Onesimus. Now, Onesimus is known for a very different reason than Tychicus. Um, he was a runaway slave of a wealthy man whose name was Philemon, in whose home the church of Colossae probably met. Everyone knew the story of Onesimus. He had probably stolen things from Philemon's house and took off for Rome. Now, surely he was taking off for the largest city in the empire to get lost, right? To blend into the masses of people there. <laughs> but you just got to love God's sovereignty because as he gets to Rome, he crosses paths with the Apostle Paul and gets saved. Um, now, that's great, right? But it's just interesting how God works that way. You can't escape God, right? And he ends up being a great help to the Apostle Paul while he's in prison there. But as soon as Onesimus confesses his past and his sinful past to Paul, Paul's like, hey, better get back there. You gotta make things right with your master. I know the church at Colossae. I know Philemon. You better get yourself back there. Um, so anyway, he decides that even though he's a great help to Paul, that he needs to go back and beg forgiveness of his master. Now, surely he was facing, you know, certain punishment, maybe even death, but Onesimus was a real follower of Christ, and he was ready to take whatever came 
and he was eager to get things right. Um, now, hopefully, you had time to read the little tiny book of Philemon for your homework. We, they asked you to read it. Stephanie asked you to read it in the questions. If you didn't, read it tonight. It'll only take you a few minutes. But there, you're going to hear more about Philemon and Onesimus. And you're going to see how much Paul loved Onesimus when you read it. And what a sacrifice it was for him to send him back to Colossians, or to the Colossians and to Philemon. I love that Paul doesn't say anything negative about Onesimus and his crimes in this book. Do you notice how he describes him in Colossians 4? He says he's faithful and he's beloved. He talks about his sin and the issues in the private book of Philemon sent to his master. And I just love that. It's a detail that, it's those kind of details that make me love the Bible and the Apostle Paul and Jesus and what he reveals to us. It, we talked about this at retreat too, and we said that when you love someone, you bear their sin and you throw a big giant blanket over their sin to cover it from everyone else. And that's what Paul did for Onesimus here. Now, ironically, Onesimus, his name means useful, which is kind of funny because I'm sure that uh, Philemon wasn't thinking he was so useful when he ran off. But Paul says to him, hey, he's useful to me, Philemon, and I hope that he will be useful to you like when he comes back to you, not just as a slave, but hopefully as a Christian brother. So it's interesting. And, he, and I think Paul is actually kind of testing the two of them. You know, we, Natalie just spoke from this pulpit, uh, Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1, which was about employees and employers, right? Bosses and employees. And it's almost like these two are getting a chance to actually be tested out and practice what they learned right there. Um, would Onesimus obey Philemon and serve him sincerely? as if he was serving the Lord? And would Philemon, on the other hand, treat him justly and fairly? That's what we were taught in that teaching. Paul seems to be confident that that is going to happen when you read the book of Philemon. Okay, so those are the two men who actually walked the text to this church. But there are three others in our reading, three individuals who stayed in Rome with Paul. The first is Aristarchus. He is from Thessalonica, and we meet him in our next sermon series in the book of Acts. Because in the riot in um, Ephesus, in the third missionary journey, when they can't find Paul and there's this whole mob going on, they can't find Paul because he's escaped, they grab Aristarchus instead. So we think he must maybe have been some kind of important person in, that, um, in the group to be pulled out like that. But they do release him and he continues on with Paul to Jerusalem in the third missionary journey. He again was one of those entrusted like Tychicus with the money, so we know he was trustworthy. And the next time we see Aristarchus, though, he is specifically mentioned as traveling with Paul to Rome and enduring the shipwreck. Remember the shipwreck where they throw all the stuff off that they need to sail? They throw the food off. They throw the lifeboats off. And then they get stuck on a sandbar and it's crashing, crashing, and they're on these little pieces of wood and floating up. Well, Aristarchus is with Paul during that horrific journey. He is there for Paul. And... In Colossians 4.10, it says something interesting about Aristarchus. It says he was his fellow prisoner. Now, we don't know for sure if he was actually arrested um, with Paul. Most people say no. Most people say that he voluntarily and willingly walked into prison to be able to be beside the Apostle Paul in his confinement. Wow, that is a good friend right there. All we know for sure is that he's sitting beside Paul when he writes this letter. He was there even when things were tough. Then we see a familiar name that you probably have heard before, and that is Mark, or John Mark. Now, he is unlike the rest of them because this guy grew up in a Christian home. 
at least from his teen years onward. His mother was a devout follower of Christ. She was a wealthy woman. In fact, we know that the church in Jerusalem met in her home. That means she had space and she had money, and John Mark was living right there. Um, remember the story in Acts 12 where Peter is in prison and the church gathers together to pray, and then he's released, and then he goes, and Rhoda leaves him standing there? That's John Mark's house. This is 30 years earlier than what we're reading right now, but that's happening when John Mark lived there. Many believe that John Mark was the young man who was aroused from sleep probably, late in the middle of the night probably, and was only wrapped in a bed sheet. And here's all the ruckus going on in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers coming in and arresting Jesus. And they try to grab this young man and, right, they grab him and he runs away and he leaves his sheet. He runs away naked. Remember that story? Most people believe that was John Mark. It's actually in his gospel and it's never named, but it's as though Mark is saying, it's me, I'm here. I saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, anyway, it's an interesting story. Maybe that was him. Uh, we also are told right here that he is the cousin of Barnabas. Now, that makes sense to us because Paul and Barnabas went on that first missionary journey, and who was their assistant? John Mark. This is the story where we know he pretty much deserts and abandons them fairly quickly in the journey. Remember that? And um, we're actually never told why. But here's a couple things that were going on at that moment. One is they just turned to Galatia, and they're going to get to this geography, which is very steep, very difficult traveling. They also have just experienced some, some very stiff persecution on the island of Paphos. And his cousin Barnabas, it's always been said in Scripture, Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul. And Barnabas has always been the headliner. And this is just about the time that you see a switch, and now it's Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Now his cousin is taking second place to the Apostle Paul. We don't know if that's why, but those are some things that were happening. Now, um, we know there was trouble because the next time they planned a trip, the second missionary journey, remember Paul and Barnabas have this, you know, disagreement, let's put it that way, about taking John Mark, right? And uh, that's not good. But at that point, Barnabas takes John Mark and Paul takes Silas and two journeys go out, two missions trips. But eventually, here and in 2 Timothy 4, we see that Paul is using John Mark again. He is open to John Mark's leadership in his life. Now, um, surely Barnabas took his cousin under his wing and traveled with him and strengthened him and encouraged him and helped him mature in his faith, as he had once done for Saul, who became Paul. No one wanted Saul around either, and what did Barnabas do for him? He went out in the desert, he found him, and he brought him back to the church in Jerusalem. He said, I'm standing by this guy. This is Saul. I know he was persecuting the church, but let's get behind him. Let's help him. Let's let him teach in the church. So this is what Barnabas did. And now all of this time has passed, and John Mark has matured and grown, and now he's helpful to Paul again. In fact, he says, welcome John Mark when he comes. That's what he says here in Colossians 4. And that surely was because they had heard stories of John Mark. They were probably suspicious of him. But Paul is saying, no, he's a good guy. He's going to end up being um, Peter's assistant, and he's going to get the privilege of writing the fourth gospel. With Peter's help, the gospel of Mark is going to come through this man who God used mightily despite his many mistakes. It's pretty encouraging. And now Paul says that John Mark is a comfort to him. And then there's the fifth guy. The fifth guy is a guy named Jesus Justice, 
and we never hear about him again. But we know that he stayed with Paul, we know he was his fellow worker, we know he was a Jew, and we know he was a comfort. That's what this passage tells us about this guy here. Um, now, Peter, or excuse me, Paul, of course, had been run out of pretty much every synagogue he had visited, right? And we know he was belittled by his countrymen left and right, and we know from his epistles to us that it broke Paul's heart that his fellow Jews were not embracing their Messiah. But here are three guys that encouraged Paul, and he was so rejoicing that these Jewish brothers were now honoring Christ as Messiah. So these are the five guys. <laughs> these are the ones that Paul is talking about in our passage today, his friends. And we can see from this that Paul has a great capacity to be a friend. Now, we speed through the names, right? You all do. We all do, right? Right? Like Romans 16, where he mentions 30 people, right? Not five, 30. Okay, we speed through it. But I want you to see today that these are not just names to Paul. They're friends. They're people. And I took the time to introduce them to you because I want you to see that they're just like us. I mean, two of these people were not, you know, people you'd like, I want to be Onesimus and I want to be John Mark. You know, two people who had big failures, but they're just like us and they were faithful friends to him. Now, it reminds me of a few years ago when heavy storms hit North Carolina and you could see the evidence of these storms when you drove down the highways. Um, I can picture it right now where, you know, there's snow everywhere, but all, of, all you can see is this highway that cuts through the center. Maybe you've traveled in that kind of weather before, where it's white as far as the eye can see. But from the interstate, you can see some groves of tall pine trees, tall young pine trees on the interstate there in North Carolina. And after this gigantic storm, the snow had built up on the branches and they were getting heavier and heavier, and the branches were bowing lower and lower and lower. But when there was other trees, when there was a grove of trees there, those branches that were bending lower and lower were able to lean against the next trunk or the next branch. And because of that, they didn't fall. But there were other places on that interstate where there's white, as far as you can see, where there was just a lone pine tree here and a lone pine tree there. And when that happened and that storm came, all the snow dumped on those branches, and they bent, and they bent, and they bent, and they bent. But there was no other trees nearby for them to lean on. So what happened? Their branches snapped and broke and lay in the snow, black and dark. See, ladies, the storms are going to come in our lives too. And we need to be standing next to other people when that happens so that we can lean on them. That is what Paul is doing right here. He's standing next to other people so that he can lean on them. He understood that in the work and the pain, he needed people. He had no close family of his own, so he built one in the church. I've had that experience too, and maybe you have as well. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so I had to build a family from the church. The great thing is we have each other, and even if you don't have that in your home, you can make that in this place and have people who love you and a family around you. It's no problem because we've got each other. The apostle was a man who loved greatly. And because of that, most likely, he was greatly loved, too. He wasn't threatened by people adding to the team. He wasn't, you know, uh, jealous of people that were preaching. He actually said, oh, yeah, great, have them preach. Okay, they don't do it like me, but as long as it's the gospel, we're behind them. He spent much time discussing his friends and investing in them. He was a soul winner and a church planter, we know that, but he was also a friend maker, and he was very good at it. He knew he should not stand alone. Now, in Colossians, Paul talks about how he's in the middle of a terrible storm. He is sitting in house arrest. It may not have been a gross, disgusting dungeon, 
Okay, but he is not able to go out and plant churches and preach the gospel to all those people and travel around or even go back and strengthen those churches. He's confined there and he doesn't like it. He is waiting for Caesar to decide what happens to him. Will he execute him? Will he let him go? Or is he gonna keep him indefinitely? That's what he's sitting through in that moment. And these guys were around him. They were Paul's friends. So who are your friends? Do you have any friends? Do you have any real ones, real walking around the planet friends that stand by you? Now, I never would have thought that I had to say it that way, except for this day and age, right? Um, I read of an article that a man wrote in the New York Times Magazine, and he was very proud of the fact that he had 700 Facebook friends. And uh, he decided, um, or he said, he was absurdly proud of how many cyber pals, connections, acquaintances, and even strangers he had managed to sign up as friends. So one day he decided to move his virtual friends to actual friends and meet in real life, right? So he decided to set up this meeting place at a local restaurant. He had his friends decide from attending, maybe attending or not attending. And he got 15 people to say they would be there out of 700. 15 people said they would be there, 60 said they might be there. So he was hoping and expecting maybe 20 people would show up at his little, whatever, dinner party he was having. Well, he got ready painstaking that night, got his nice sport coat on. He had made reservations at this nice place. He walked down there. And guess how many friends showed up? And wasn't even his friend. It was a mutual friend that it was a connection from someone else. Um, this whole article he wrote about his experience and he concluded with these words. 700 friends, and I was eating alone. Now, our culture calls these cyberspace people friends. But the Apostle Paul knew that your friends needed to have skin on and walk around the planet with you. And uh, he wants us to make some of those. Even Jesus depended on friends. Of course, he had thousands in the crowds, but he had 12 guys. 12 guys who stuck with him. And when he sent out the 70, he said, I want you to go out in pairs because he knew that we need each other, like those trees, right? We needed other trees around us in the snowstorm. You're part of a huge body of Christ at Compass, and it's wonderful. But on Sundays, we have something like, whatever, 2,800 people. And even here or at retreat, you've got hundreds of women in this room. It's great. It's wonderful when we're worshiping together and we're all studying the word together. But you need to have someone who will fight for your heart and who will actually know you and care about you. In the Bible, it says these things. Hebrews 3.13 says, we should be exhorting one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That was Hebrews 3.13. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And Proverbs 27.17 says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. But I'm gonna have you turn to the classic passage, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. I know it's familiar, I know you did in your homework, I know you've seen it, but I want us to actually look at it and see the things that a friend does for you. We're gonna just spend a, two minutes here. But these are the wise words of King Solomon about friendship. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 says this. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. In other words, you work together, even on a project, Two people make more progress than one does alone. Whether you're stuffing Easter eggs for extravaganza, two people can do that faster. 
whether it's you know setting up the easy ups out there, two people work faster than one. There's better reward for your work or toil. But then it says, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him is alone who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. That's like our pine trees on the interstate, right? We're all gonna stumble. We're all gonna fall. We're all gonna make mistakes. And it's so important that someone else is there to help us stand back up again and to get the confidence to stand back up again and keep going. That's another thing friends do first. Here's another. Again, if two lie down, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? Now, you're thinking, okay, well, I don't really need that one because we have, you know, fireplaces and furnaces. Yes, but there are practical things that friends do for you, practical ways that they support you and uh, bring warmth to your life, maybe metaphorically. <laughs> and then it says, and though a man may prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. In other words, if when an enemy comes against you, two or three is way better than standing there and fighting the battle on your own. And many of you have seen that happen. Even if it's a, an apologetics discussion with a non-Christian, sometimes it just helps to have another voice there. And sometimes it's way more difficult than just having a conversation. Two or three help out. These are nice verses for a plaque or for a pillow, but they're difficult to live day in and day out. But also look at all the advantages not just about what you have to give, it's what you get from these friends. Now, honestly, we all want a friend who will do those four things for us. All of us do. But not all of us are willing to be a friend that does all those things, right? That's hard. It takes time and sacrifice to build those kinds of friendships. Now, if you have them already, great. Nurture them, develop them, don't take them for granted because if you do, you will wake up and realize you don't have them anymore. You haven't talked to them for a quite a while or you know they were in trouble and you didn't even do anything to help out. You might lose them if you don't nurture and maintain them. Warren Wiersbe once said, every man, and Warren Wiersbe, by the way, was a great pastor, pastor of Moody Church, author. If you get anything that says it's written by Warren Wiersbe, Read it. He was a great pastor, great leader in the church. He said this, every man should seek to have three individuals in his life, a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. Paul is an older man who's willing to mentor you and build in your life. He's not someone who's smarter than you. He's just someone who's been down the road farther than you and um, someone whose faith you want to imitate. Barnabas is a soul brother. This is someone who loves you but isn't impressed by you. Um, someone who will hold you accountable and uh, who's willing to keep you honest. And Timothy, Timothy is a younger brother or sister in his life you are building. Um, Paul was the quintessential older brother, and he mentored his disciples by affirming them, encouraging them, teaching them, correcting them, directing them, praying for them. These three individuals. Do you have these three gals in your life? If you do, great. If you don't, I'm going to give you some help. You knew that was coming. I have two helps for you here, but there will be many more throughout the message. Two helps. This is your make a friend to-do list. Uh, the first one is letter A, prepare yourself. You want to be a good friend, prepare yourself. Listen, if, 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 if you're going to be a good Christian friend, you got to be a good Christian. There's no way you're going to attract good Christians to be your friend 
if they don't see some growth and encouragement and strengthening in your own life and your own relationship with God. So spend that time every day reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, praying. Hang on to those spiritual disciplines. That will make you be prepared to be a friend and to grow friendships. Don't wait until everything's perfect, but make sure you're working on your disciplines. Letter B is pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. There are lots of Christian women. I look around this room. We are rich in wonderful, godly Christian women. They're all around you. But you need God's wisdom to know who is your Paul, who is your Barnabas, who is your Timothy. Ask him to show you that. Do your spiritual disciplines on a regular basis and then ask for his wisdom about who these people are in your life. Now, I think that Paul is probably the easiest to spot uh, because they're the person you see and you go, oh, I want to be like that person. Like, they're, they're the ones that are investing in other people. But frankly, um, you're running up to them wanting them to mentor you. Mentor me, mentor me. Uh, this woman doesn't have time to mentor you because my guess, she's, she's already mentoring a whole bunch of people. That's what made her attractive to you is how she was pouring her life into other people. So don't be sad if she can't get a weekly meeting with you. In fact, I probably wouldn't even ask her. You know what I would do? I would watch her. I would sit down next to her. I would take notes. I would follow her. Whatever she was serving in, I'd serve in. How can I help you? I'd pray for her. I'd pray with her. I'd watch her and I'd take notes. She's your Paul. Um, now, Timothy, I think, is the next easiest to spot. But he's going to be the one that costs you the most. The most energy, the most time, the most commitment, but there's the greatest potential with the Timothy in your life. Um, yeah, they're gonna drain you, but you are gonna have the joy of seeing your investment pay off when they're able to stand on their own two feet and they begin to serve in Compass or in one of our plants. Now, I, I had to smile because I was listening to Focal Point the other day, and yes, I do listen to Focal Point. Um, I was listening to Focal Point the other day, and in this message, Pastor Mike was talking about how our children are arrows, and he talks about they have to be shaped, molded, and launched, by the way, not rooted in the backyard when they become college students and never leave your home. You know, we actually want that more than they do, and we pressure them to stay when they shouldn't. They're supposed to be launched, okay? So he was talking about that, and he said, I actually have two boys down the hall that I'm working on right now. So obviously, Stephanie hadn't made the hit parade yet, hadn't joined our clan at that point. So this is whatever, 20, 25 years ago. And um, I just thought it was the greatest thing, because then he says, you need to, all of you, he's telling our whole church of adults, you need to be investing in those arrows down the hall in kids' ministry, across the way in the junior high and the high school ministry. He said, you know, those kids that you're changing their diapers, they may be the ones that are leading in your church someday. They may be the pastors in your church one day. Hmm, this was 20 years ago. And I had a moment of sobriety as I thought about who was in kids' men 25 years ago. And these are the people who were in kids' men 25 years ago, who are now adults, who are now living out on their own, who are now paying their own gas bill, 
who have owned their salvation and are serving at Compass Bible Church here or at one of our plants. These are a few of them. I know you could tell me others. Every single day, I've added more names. It gets longer and longer here. How about Dr. John Goodrich, who's an adjunct professor? He came here as a junior hire, got saved here, and is now serving at Compass. His brother, Jeremy Goodrich, also. How about Joseph and Abby Lopez? Sammy and Isaac Garrido. Pastor Nathan Jovichin. Trisha Chu, Maddie and Diego Morales, Cami Eaton, Ryan DiNocenzo, Sarah Kelly, Kellyan Bialanski, Angela Heckler, Charlotte Richardson, Alyssa White, Justin Sherman, Pastor Evan Jacobson, Shane and Haley Ruin, Francesca Hinkleman, Matt and Erica Shu, Pastor Matt and Karina, Pastor John and Alexandra. Every single one of those people grew up in the kids' men were Compass Kids and are now serving in leadership positions at this church or at one of our plants. And they're adults, they own their salvation. They're not living in us, our homes anymore. And they're serving the Lord. You know, he told us someday those people, they're our future and they're gonna have the reins to the church. They're going to have the leadership positions. We need to invest in them. Those are the Timothys, ladies. They had Pauls that invested in them, in kids ministry classrooms, in small groups at high school ministry, and at our kitchen tables. They were shaped and molded, and now they're the leaders in our churches. It's pretty amazing. So you need to ask God, who will be your Timothy? They're out there. They're probably in Kidsmen right now, in some point in Kidsmen. And then, of course, they're the, Bar the Barnabases. These are the hardest to find because this is someone whose heart beats with yours. This is the David to your Jonathan, the Jonathan to your David. And frankly, you're all going, yes, this is the one I want. This is the one I'm missing. I want this best friend, right? Now you're talking. Well, let me just kindly and carefully and slowly and quietly tell you, <clears throat> you just need to go out and be a Barnabas for a while. Worship beside them. Serve beside them. Love them. Pray for them. And someday you're going to wake up and find that God answered your prayer and gave you a person whose heart beats with yours. You didn't go out seeking it, but God gave it to you anyway because you made it your aim to be a friend instead of to get a friend, which is very important. Our journey towards gaining friends is first and foremost admitting that you need them. Well, now you might be saying, well, that sounds great, Carlin, but I've done the friendship thing before and I know what happens. When I put myself out there, people disappoint me. They crush me, they hurt me, they abandon me. I know this is a risk. I'm not willing to take it. You're right. I can absolutely guarantee you, if you take a risk to be a friend, you will get hurt. It's just gonna happen. But it's a risk you can't afford not to take. Paul knows in his bones what it's like to be burned and abandoned, and so do I, and so do many of you here. You know it, but we need to be open to friendships regardless of the risk. The benefit and the necessity of friends is much too great to miss out on. Paul knew it, and we need to know it. You know, Paul eagerly wanted people to know about what was happening to him, and we see that in this passage here. He is not tentative and reclusive. He is open and transparent, not just here, but lots of places in Scripture. We see him being open and transparent. We need to do what Paul did, and we need to point number two, risk openness with your friends. Risk openness with your friends. Paul says that he is sending Tychicus and Onesimus because he trusts them to share about his life, his ministry, his confinement. He is going to tell them stuff that the letter doesn't tell. 
He's probably going to tell them stuff about how Paul is really doing emotionally, how he sleeps at night, all those little things, right? Um, it says here that they would tell him how they are, this is in Colossians 4, that he would encourage their hearts and tell them everything that has taken place. Paul isn't being secretive. He isn't being fake. He isn't trying to win their sympathy vote. He's just being real. He realized what wise people already understand, and that's that you can never get really close to someone unless you share yourself. You can't. Paul wants the Colossians to know him, and he also wants to encourage them as he shows them that everybody goes through challenges, right? Paul's going through them, and here's what's happening in my life. You know, on November 5th, 1994, Ronald Reagan, who was our 40th president, wrote this letter. He said, I've recently been told that I'm one of the millions of Americans who is afflicted with Alzheimer's. Upon hearing the news, Nancy and I had to decide whether as private citizens now, we would keep this a private matter or whether we should make the news known. In the past, Nancy and I have both suffered with cancer, and we found that through open disclosure, we were able to raise public awareness. We were happy that as a result, many more people underwent testing and were treated in the early stages. So now we feel it's important to share this with you. In opening our hearts, we hope it will promote greater awareness of the condition and perhaps encourage a clearer understanding of the individuals and the families that are affected by this. Thank you, my friends, and may God bless you. Instead of pretending that nothing was wrong and trying to cover up what was happening with the president's health, he was honest and vulnerable, and in his weakness, he reached out to other people. And sometimes we're afraid that when we share things, it will discourage people. But actually, the very opposite is true. We are strengthened when we share what's really going on in our lives and our friendships, and when we let people know who we are, warts and all. Now, I've certainly found that to be true in my life. The times when I didn't want to share were the times when I grew hard and lonely and fearful. And the times when I trusted one or two close friends, I felt completely different. And I realized it was not good, not just for others for me not to share, but it was not good for me not to share with people. I was cutting people out of the chance to help me, to uh, pray for me to encourage me and to support me. But I was also uh, cutting out their blessing that they might get from God. You all know that the Bible says, if you give even a cup of cold water to a brother or sister in Christ, that you will not lose your reward. And I'm basically cutting all that off by not letting people know what's going on in my life, especially in the big hard things of our lives. And they're also going to miss out on watching a Christian sister navigate through tough waters and glean whatever nuggets they might get for their next painful trial. 1 Corinthians 10.13 puts it this way, no temptation, and that word is also trial or test, has overtaken you except what is common to man. In other words, everybody goes through the same stuff. <laughs> we, nothing is new on this planet, so don't hold back. Be real with your friends for them and for you. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully around hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safely in the casket of your selfishness. And in that casket, it's safe, it's dark, motionless, and airless. It will not change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. 
The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. Ladies, the worst danger that we face in our friendships is never sharing at all and never trusting another human being. You will grow cold and uncaring, withdrawn and distant, fake and insincere. So you need to give yourself away to a trustworthy friend. Find a person who loves Jesus first and most, and then just mosey on up to her. Worship beside her, serve beside her, be in small group with her, and share something, even if it's one thing, one safe thing you can share with her. And then build upon that as you see her trustworthiness. But let me tell you right now, she's going to blow it. <laughs> Just like all of you are going to blow it. Just like I've blown it. Raise of hands. Anybody told a friend you were going to call them and you didn't? Anybody tell a friend you were going to be there for them and then you wake up and realize three days later you haven't been there for them? Okay. She's going to do that to you too. What are you going to do? You're going to do what we talked about retreat. When we're at peace with others, you're going to let it go. And you're going to forgive like Christ forgave you. And you're going to go on and you're going to trust her with the next little thing and the next little thing and the next little thing. No one's perfect. But entrust yourself to a Barn be a Barnabas in someone's life. Entrust yourself to them. Sign up for the long haul with them. In our Amazon Prime DoorDash, you know, bring the food to your location. Sometimes it isn't a door. Your location. Uh, we all want this to happen really fast, right? We want to click and be a friend. Be a friend, yay, overnight. But that is not how it works. When you want long and lasting friendships, it's going to take time. But you have a lovely pool of women right here. Can I invite you to dip your toe into the pool of friends one more time and take a chance? Some of you just want a cannonball in. Great, we love you. And then some are going to dive in and some are just going to be like, I can barely step inside. Okay, either any of those ways, trust yourselves to these ladies and start again. This is like a retirement account. You put the money in month after month, right? So that someday it will have huge dividends for you and your family. But you're not really seeing that payoff on day one, right? That's what friendship's like. Someday, you're going to have that if you keep investing a little at a time. So risk openness with your friends. Okay, well, let's be real for a minute. Paul did not have these great friends because only because he was open, right? We know that Paul had good friends because he was a good friend, right? We know that's why he had friends. He cared about people. He fought for people. He served people. He prayed for people. We need to do that, too. We need to, point number three, work to be a good friend. Work to be a good friend. Now, of course, we all know the Apostle Paul, he was like a friend magnet, right? He didn't have to try, and he just had people running to him, right? He was a godly leader. He was a wise man. He was gifted. Everybody wanted to be his friend. Okay, every Christian wanted to be his friend. Okay, but when they started hunting him down, throwing rocks at him, and arresting him, most of his so-called friends bailed out. Because if you were a friend of the Apostle Paul, you might literally have to take a hit for him. So yeah, he might have been a friend magnet, but it, it, you know, depending on the person, it was limited. Now, um, it was not easy for a guy like Paul to maintain his friendships. It's actually much harder for him to maintain them than you. It was risky to be a friend of Paul, but he did have good ones. So let me just say to you, if you want to have a good friend, you gotta be a good friend. If you want a good and godly and trustworthy friend, you have to be a good and godly and trustworthy friend. 
from Paul's description of his pals, I see three things that's going to be a template for us to be better friends. Maybe you see them too. But these people were faithful, they were busy serving, and they were encouraging. Let's look at them one at a time. First of all, when we work to be a good friend, we need to, letter A, work on faithfulness. In verse 7 and verse 9, Paul uses the word faithful to describe his friends. Faithfulness is to be trustworthy and reliable. It means when these guys were asked to do something, they did it. It got done, period. No questions asked. We don't know what the tasks were. Maybe it was getting food for Paul. Maybe it was getting supplies. Maybe it was paper so that he could write the book of Colossians, right? Maybe it was checking into travel plans or um, seeing how the churches they had planted were going or the appeals process for Caesar. I don't know what the tasks were, but whatever the tasks were that he gave these guys to do, they did it. They made sure they did it. But the best thing they did, as I said to you already, was that they stayed with him. They didn't leave when things got tough. A faithful friend sticks with you. I'm guessing that every day with Paul was not a picnic. He had lots of setbacks. He sat around probably bored and frustrated under house arrest for many a day. And of course, there was great persecution. But Paul's friends stayed and even fought the monotony of being there, trapped, whatever the battle was they faced. It reminds me of something that happened actually really close by here a few years back with two friends. One girl's name was Anne and one girl's name was, uh, let's see, Debbie. And they were mountain biking on a trail when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a 110-pound mountain lion jumps out on the trail and grabbed Anne, jumped on her back and grabbed her and started dragging her away. Well, Debbie clung on to Anne's legs with all she was worth and started this tug of war with a 110-pound mountain lion. And people ran up because they heard Debbie screaming. They ran up and they started throwing rocks and yelling and doing everything they could to get this mountain lion to let her go. And eventually, they did let her go and ran away into the bushes. Witnesses who saw what happened said that Debbie had blood on her and said that she'd obviously endured a struggle and that she was shaking, but that she, cut, she just kept saying one thing, I am not going to let go. I am not going to let go. I am not going to let go. And she didn't. And you see, the tenacity of a mountain lion was overcome by the faithfulness of a friend. That's why Anne was not dragged away, because she had a faithful friend. Um, I'm grateful to say that I have a couple friends who hang on to me even when the mountain lion has my head. And then there are seasons when I've got them because I've got a couple of them right now that the mountain lion has their head. And we can be that for each other. So how can you be a faithful friend? Well, one place in Scripture, where do I start? One place in Scripture is Matthew 5.37. It just tells us simply, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Or do what you said you would do. That's all that means. Do what you said you would do. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. If you said you're going to pick up something for Stacy today, pick it up today. If you said you're going to meet Stephanie at 9 o'clock, be there at 9 o'clock. If you told Laura you're going to call her, then call her. And the reverse is also true. If you told Christy, I won't tell anyone what you told me, then don't tell anyone. And if you told Natalie, I won't forget to pray for your surgery, don't forget. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. That's how simple this is, being a faithful friend. Live out the truth that it's found in 1 Corinthians 4.2. It clearly says this. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. 
1 Corinthians 4.2. And you know, this is not an add-on to the Christian life. This isn't a second level of Christianity. This is required of every Christian, that they be a faithful steward of whatever is handed them. This is expected of us. Faithful, <clears throat> we gotta be faithful like Tychicus and Onesimus was. You know, some of you I know don't feel like a spiritual superstar. You don't feel like you have a lot to offer. You don't feel like you're super incredibly gifted. But you know what? You can offer your faithfulness. Your faithfulness is invaluable to the person that you support and you befriend and that you get behind. Even if you don't think you're all that special, you are. Your faithfulness is incredibly important to the person that you support. Now, the people that God gifts to do great things are leaders they are subject to all kinds of trouble and heartache. They experience burdens and battles that most people don't know about. They will never be able to endure them if they don't have faithful people supporting them, praying for them, encouraging them, and frankly, expecting not much from them in return. They need that. God's work cannot be accomplished without faithful people like you. So be a good friend by working on your faithfulness. There's another thing here that Paul's pals did, and that is they served. In order to be good friends, you need to letter B, work at serving. In verse 7, Tychicus is said to be a fellow servant. In verse 11, he describes these men as fellow workers. Um, we know they were servants because of what they did. Even if Paul had not used this word, they traveled with him, they sat with him, they delivered letters for him, right? Because of what they did, we know they were serving. Um, they were busy doing what God wanted them to do and what Paul needed them to do, which is frankly why when the time came that Paul needed these letters delivered, he turned to Tychicus. He grabbed Tychicus. God said, okay, there's a tool in my toolbox who is available to me and always working for me. His name is Tychicus. Let me pull him out. He's going to get to deliver three pieces of scripture because he was already serving. He was faithful already, and so there he is. God grabbed him out. And also, Tychicus was very much needed by Onesimus. Think about it. Onesimus was not the hometown hero. No one's going, ticker tape parade for Onesimus when he walks into town. He needs a man who's faithful standing next to him. He needs a man who's above reproach, who's going to defend him and walk into town before they, you know, string him up. And he never even gets to say what's going on. I became a Christian. I'm sorry. I'm here to beg forgiveness. But he had Tychicus with him to defend him. Paul's pals, they gave up their time and energy every day and were available for whatever was needed. So if you want to be a good friend, you need to live out Romans 12, 1. It's very familiar to you, but it says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You need to get busy doing kingdom work right now. Right now, just do the stuff that would promote God's kingdom here. These guys were asked to do things because they were already in the game. You know that we always say it, that 80% of the work at the church is done by 20% of the people. So join the 20%, right? I actually hope and pray that from God's perspective, it's way more than 20% here at Compass Bible Church. But if you're not there yet, join us. Find a ministry post or two. You know, when a need comes up, say, I can do that. Pastor Doug presented, and so did Susan tonight, two needs we have. Two big needs coming up in this most important outreach of our year. Extravaganza. Now, we all would rather hang out with each other, watch the kids run after the eggs, maybe hand out the little brochures, but you know what needs to be done? 
Someone needs to stand alone with a pretty yellow coat and point. Because that's what needs to be done. That's what they're asking us to do. If you haven't signed up to do anything, do that. Okay, and, and Bible Time Marketplace. Pastor Doug got up here and told us, could you serve one and could you go to another service? Because we need an army of people. There you go. Work to be a good friend by serving. Looking back at our passage, there's also one more description of these friends. The word in verse 11 is that they were a comfort to Paul. It's only used one time here. What does it mean? It means, it means relief. They were a relief to him. Um, they were encouraging is the word I'm going to use to him. They eased his pain and they alleviated his stress and anxiety. And frankly, some of us are good at that and some of us need to work a little harder at it. I'll be the first to tell you, I am not this person in your life. I'm going to be able to get a lot of things done for you. But the ah is not the first thing that is my nature. Many of you are my heroes because it is yours. And I, I admire you and I try to follow your example. But we all going to need to work on it a little bit. What a gift it is when we're that relief to a sister or brother in Christ. When, when we get in their presence, they feel supported and encouraged. They feel like they can do it because we're there. Um, everybody has this to give. Everybody can cheer people on. So letter C for this one, working to be a good friend, is working at encouraging. Working at encouraging others, being a relief to them. Um, I, the obvious thing is sharing, sharing encouraging words with them. Uh, that would be my first suggestion in this. Sharing encouraging words with them. We all know what it's like to get a note or a text or an email or a call or if someone passes by that tells us very specific things about what we did and how it made a difference in their life. Because you know what? That makes you feel like you matter. Somebody noticed. Like um, Proverbs 25:11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I try to picture that. The bottom line is it's beautiful. It's beautiful when a word is fitly spoken. In other words, don't just say to Scarlett, good job, Scarlett, with the worship. How about, wow, those words that you chose, they really directed my heart to Christ. I was more ready to do the scriptures and learn tonight because you got my heart close to God. See how much more encouraging and specific that would be then? Good job. High five as she walks out the door. We need to encourage and spur people on. You know, we did not hear Jesus going, attaboy, Peter. Way to go, John. He was one who encouraged with his life. And he encouraged with his life, I think, in three ways. He encouraged with his actions and his prayers and God's word. With his actions, with his prayers, and with God's word. Jesus' actions spoke very loudly. He got down on his knees and washed the dirt off their stinky, hairy feet because they were all too good to do it. You do realize that's why he did it. He also forgave their mistakes. See how he encouraged them by what he did? He forgave their mistakes. And then eventually he would die for them. That's how much he showed in his actions that they were important and encouraged them. He also used his prayers. There are not many things in this life that are more encouraging and more of a boost than hearing your sisters 
beg God at his throne for you. When was the last time you heard someone pray for you? Or when was the last time you prayed for them in front of them? Super encouraging. Pray with your sisters. Don't just go to lunch. Pray for them in front of each other. It will encourage one another. And he used God's word. Obviously, he was God, so his word, right? But reminding us of the promises of God, of his impeccable track record, of who he is. We need to be using God's word in our relationships with friends to encourage them and to keep their head above water sometimes. Every conversation, every text message, every email should be infiltrated with the word of God to encourage people. So be faithful, serve, and encourage your friends, and you will be a good friend. Now, before my oldest could drive, preach, and parent, um, he had to learn to ride his bike, okay? And he did love riding his bike. Uh, He loved riding down the steep hill around the corner from our house. He loved riding to school with his brother. Yes, we were those parents, I'm happy to say. Um, And he loved jumping ramps and curbs, right, and all that. He also loved the freedom to drive to a friend's house. He loved riding his bike. But it wasn't always that way. I remember the day we took off his training wheels. Ooh, bad day. I mean, you would have thought that we were going to take him to the doctor for shots or make him eat Brussels sprouts. I mean, it was bad. He negotiated, cried, whined, manipulated, did everything he could to try to get Pastor Mike and Carlin to put the training wheels back on. Do you really think that was going to work? No way, no how. No way, no how. No matter what he did, we weren't putting those things back on. It got so bad that I had to go out and like make an appointment with my oldest. Okay, we're going out to the cul-de-sac every day for five minutes. That went really well, right? And he was the most stubborn. So we walked out there and we were like, let's learn to ride our bike. Five minutes. And of course, it was torturous and crying. It was not a Norman Rockwell moment, right? All the joy was sucked out of it because mommy was on a mission. We were going to learn to ride our bikes. Well, I'm happy to say that over time, he did learn to ride his bike and so much more. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful that he ended up finding great joy in that. But learning to ride your bike is a lot like making friends. It's hard. It feels uncomfortable. You feel out of balance. You might get hurt. You might fall over. You're risking a lot to do it. But in the end, the joy is so great. The payoff is so good. And besides all of the payoff, it's also what God wants for you so that you have exactly what you need when the storms come. Paul needed friends, and so do we. Let's grow some this week. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much. As I think about what this room looks like right now, I really mean it. We are rich. We are rich in women, godly women, who are able to be good friends. Women who love your word and are here on a Tuesday night after working all day or all week, and they fight to be here. These women are a treasure. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to realize I pray that you would help them to move forward in making more friends and in being a better friend. You know, Pastor Mike told us a couple weeks ago, we're supposed to have 12 friends. Woo, we got a long ways to go, some of us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us even to push towards a few more than we had last week. I pray for those friends even to grow up in our small group 
even tonight as we sit next to each other, may we realize, may we pray and realize that God has a Paul, a Barnabas, a Timothy in that group right now for us to invest in or be knit to or just enjoy and observe and learn from. Thank you so much for the richness of the body of Christ. And thank you so much that Paul was such an amazing friend maker. What an example he is for us. Help us to do this even now in our groups. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.